Welcome back to Sashimi. In this episode, I spoke with Jeffrey Moore, the author of numerous tech marketing books, including the bestseller Crossing the Chasm. In this interview, Jeffrey shared the blueprint for Crossing the Chasm, discussed how COVID affected the chasm, and how SaaS companies should apply the blueprint to SMB and enterprise target markets. We also spoke about Jeffrey's newest book, Zone to Win, written for various stage technology companies. But first, let me tell you about the sponsor of this season of Sashimi, Siligo. Saligo is the leading enterprise-wide integration platform as a service for mid-market companies. Named the G2 Best Software for 2021, Saligo enables breakaway growth, controlled cost management, and superior customer experiences by ensuring that every process at any level of the organization can be automated in the most optimal way. For more information, visit saligo.com or just click the link in the description. And now, back to my interview with Jeffrey Moore. Well, Jeffrey, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Typically, I ask my guests to introduce themselves, but I think you don't really need introduction. People in the tech world know you very well for your books. Maybe you can say a little bit about your latest book, The Zone to Win. Sure. And yeah, most people know me for Crossing the Chasm. And basically, I've been advising in the tech sector now for, for 30 years or so. And they've always been about, all the books have been about the technology adoption lifecycle and how it creates, it shapes markets and how you have to adapt your strategy as you go through the cycle. The latest book, Zone to Win, is about how do you do that when you're a public company with a core business? And so it wants investment and you have customers that want you to sort of stay the course with the existing paradigm. But at the same time, you see this next generation wave coming and you know you got to get on that wave. But now there's not enough money to go around, and it creates a lot of tension inside the company. And so Zone to Win, the the subtitle was Organizing to Compete in an Age of Disruption. And it really is around how do you organize so that you can address both of these things independently, because they tend to conflict with each other. And so you want to make sure you handle them in their own, give each one its own space, as it were. So that's what the book's about. And and a lot of companies right now are, are using that book as a playbook. And it's primarily for mature companies, as I understood. Yeah, it's for any company that has a core business, which is providing most of its working capital. Gotcha, gotcha. So, so it's not a startup book. Most of our listeners are in a somewhat in a smaller on startupish world, so we're going to be focusing on crossing the chasm. That would um, be great. That'll be a lot about of about that. Yeah. So, crossing the chasm was written more than thirty years ago, and it's yeah, still the, applicable. It first came out in nineteen ninety, and it was right at the beginning of the client server was just hitting the market at that time. So, tells you how far back in time that was. There was still a lot of people were on DOS. I mean, Windows was still a little bit like whoa. <laughs> so it was it was way back in time, and then it was updated in nineteen ninety nine with new examples, and then more importantly, it was updated in twenty fourteen with more SaaS oriented examples. I don't think you can actually summarize in a few words, but let's just try to summarize the, what, what the book about, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, so the whole point of that book, and, the, and really all the books, is when you introduce a disruptive innovation into any community, it self-segregates into these different adoption personas. And the, the first two personas were the technology enthusiast and the visionary, and they are people who believe what you believe, and they buy in early, and they give you lots of great signals, and they give you lots of wonderful feedback, and they often, the visionary will occasionally sign some very big deals. And so you get this real excitement and enthusiasm of, wow, that we're, this is the next big thing. But most of the mainstream market is not that way. Most of the mainstream market says, I will do this when I see other people doing it, but not before. And so that creates kind of a hesitation in market development. We called it the chasm. And the idea of crossing the chasm was, how do you get that more hesitant uh, prospect base 
to buy into a new innovation. And what the key idea was, these people are very pragmatic. So basically, if they don't have to, they're not going to. But there's always a group of people who have to because they've got a use case they can't solve with their existing solutions, and they're under increasing pressure to solve the use case. So the idea behind crossing the chasm was simply to say, to focus on a single segment with a very, very urgent use case that's, that they can't solve today, and then commit your company using your technology to address that, that use case. And what it does is it wins you a market segment on the other side of the chasm. And that's kind of like a beachhead. You know, it's like a place to start in the mainstream market. And then the rest of the idea was, okay, once you win that first segment, and, and by the way, what happens is if you can actually solve the problem, they all tell their friends immediately and they say, hey, there's a vaccine. <laughs> you should get the vaccine. <laughs> so, so they tell their friends. And, and so you win that first segment and then you could go into adjacent segments or maybe take that segment into new use cases. And we call that the bowling pin model and where you would, you would go from segment to segment to segment. And then if you have enough of those, what happens is the market goes, well, wait a minute, this isn't for this use case. Or that. This is infrastructure. This is for every use case. And that created the opposite of the chasm, which is when everybody rushes into the market, we call it the tornado. And there was a book called Inside the Tornado, which is how you take advantage of that. And so that's sort of the, the rhythm of the, of the two books. And you mentioned that you have to focus on the segment. How big should be the segment? Because the first thing people might think, it's maybe thousands of companies you need to help. No, it's, this is very important. We have a very clear rule about picking the beachhead segment. And it has to do with the fact that you need to dominate it, which means you really would like to get 50 or 60 or even 80% of that use case in that segment. So what we say about this segment is, given your size, let's suppose you have $5 million in ARR. And I want to like, I want to get to like 20 Okay. Say, okay, 20. Great. So if I'm going to dominate the segment, maybe I'm not going to get all my sales from there, but let's suppose I can get more than half. Okay. So that means I want to get $10 million worth of sales from this segment in the next two years. So how big can the segment be if I dominate it? Maybe only 20 or $30 million. So the idea is it's got to be big enough to matter to me, but small enough that I can lead it. And then it's got to be a good fit with my crown jewels. So those are the three. If you're a SaaS leader and you had to memorize anything from crossing the chasm, the segment, big enough to matter, small enough to lead, good fit with our crown jewels. So when we talk about Cosm, does Cosm exist only for companies that create completely new type of software, like an example of software or something, even their competitor also experiences that? If, if there's enough competition in the category, then the category is on the other side of the chasm. You may be late to the category, but you're not crossing the chasm now. You're not just competing on the other side of the chasm. And for example, Microsoft never crossed the chasm itself. It always waited until the other product got across the chasm. And then what it was really good at was winning in the tornado. But it would, it would be a fast follower and it would catch up amazingly fast. That's what always surprised everybody. But it did it, they did it over and over again. So you talk about the crossing the chasm and it based on this technology adoption life cycle, right? That you briefly discussed. How has this life cycle changed over the past 30 years? Well, it's interesting. The life cycle idea that pragmatists will wait, that's an eternal idea. That will happen. It happens in tech, but it happens with any disruption of any kind. So what's new, I think, are some of the, of the, the technology landscape has changed. And so what you're always looking for is buyers who have anxiety about a buying risk, and they're afraid to buy because they're not sure it's okay. So in any market at any time, there's always that frontier. If you go beyond the frontier, you're like, well, I don't know yet. 
If you stay inside the frontier, there's already budgets, people are comfortable buying. And so the chasm always appears at the frontier of technology change. You obviously keep, you've been observing what's what's happening in the market last two years, COVID hit, right? And even the companies that were very resistant to technology were forced to adopt it. What was COVID's, I don't know, effect on uh, Chasm? It's maybe the first question. Yeah, it's a terrific question. It's a great question. Basically, it forced a whole bunch of people right up to the edge of the chasm because they, they had to go digital or die. Right. And so remember, the idea behind crossing the chasm is the pragmatists will adopt a new technology if they have to, you know, if they're under pressure. And of course, COVID created this enormous pressure for us to go all digital. And so it was a huge chasm crossing accelerator. Huge. And maybe the second question, and you've seen what's happening in the markets today, right? And it particularly affected SaaS companies and in the public markets. They suddenly all lost the valuation they gained over COVID. What does it mean to you? Does it mean that suddenly people giving up on this technology or something else? Well, I think there's two things going on. I think you have to really make a distinction between B2B SaaS companies and B2C SaaS companies. So I think the B2B SaaS companies have lost value much the way every other stock in the market has lost value. In other words, I think people still believe those companies deliver value. But they just feel the whole market was wildly overvalued. There was no risk really priced into the market for a long, long time. So we had quite a bubbly, frothy market. And then the combination of the supply chain, not the pandemic itself, as you said, that actually helped. But the supply chain has created huge issues. The inflation has created huge issues. And now the war in Ukraine has created huge issues. And the fear and then the shutdown of Shanghai has created huge issues. So all of a sudden, the market has gone from, you know, nothing can go wrong to kind of nothing can go right. And so it basically, it's been cut in half, I mean, fundamentally. And that'll come back. Now, I said that was B2B. B2C is a different problem. So B2C is not as much of a must-have as it is a nice-to-have or should-have or fun-to-have or whatever. And B2C depends on discretionary income. And in an inflationary economy, discretionary incomes could get pinched. And I think B2C... You know, got pretty wildly overvalued anyway. And then you have things like Bitcoin. It was just kind of an investment play. It wasn't, wasn't clear what Bitcoins were going to be used for, except to maybe as a hedge against inflation. I don't know, but it didn't work. I think it's a bunch of reality checking happened. It happened in 2008. It happened in 2001. It happened in 1992. I mean, this is my, my fourth time at this movie. And by the way, we, the other three we came back from, and I expect we'll come back from this one. But it's no fun if you're right in the middle of it right now. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. So let's talk about the blueprint of crossing the chasm. What's hard and what's, let's say, easier in that blueprint to uh, apply to SaaS companies? You know, it's really funny. I think the hard thing is having the conviction to focus on a single segment and then to get your company aligned to stay focused on that segment and to realize that if you can dominate that segment, you will change your the whole market's relationship to your company in a very positive way. Because when you're looking for extra money, you're thinking, well, any sales going to help somehow. So, you know, I can't focus just on one segment. And the answer is actually you can. And if you do, you'll become a lot more powerful. So that's the hard thing. The easy thing in crossing the chasm is once you pick a segment and a use case, then just staying focused on that use case, your chances of dominating that market are actually very high, assuming you've got you know, some technology 
that really is special. I mean, you, you have to have a technology special that makes you really good at that use case where other people aren't. But when you focus that tightly, what happens is your competitors go, well, it's only a $40 million market. There's lots of other customers. Well, I don't want to fight this little company who's obviously very tenacious. I'll go someplace else. And so you actually, the, the competitors actually retreat from the market you're in. And then they just try to keep you in that segment. Oh yeah, they're very good, but they're only good in healthcare for that one application. Anything else you should, you know, we should, you should buy us. But what that does is that teaches the market, you're the leader in that one area. And, that, and when you're the leader, then what happens is an ecosystem starts to form around your company because the ecosystem realizes for this market segment and this use case, these people are the, are the kingmakers. These are the people that are making the, helping the customers you know, figure out their partners. So we want to partner with them. And when you start to have an ecosystem, that's when you become a going concern. That's when the world now has a stake in your future existence. Whereas before, they weren't trying to kill you, but they weren't trying to keep you alive. Now you've got a bunch of people on your side, and it's a very different game from then on. And how does the company realize that they are already in the point where they actually should start diversifying from that one segment? I think as, as soon as you realize that the segment has kind of anointed you as the leader, mm -hmm. you want to immediately start thinking about your adjacent bowling pins. You don't want to go too far away from that first segment initially because you're not that big and not that strong. But you're now looking for your second use case with the current customers or your second segment with the same use case. Because you want your ecosystem to kind of come with you. Because a company's power is really the power of its ecosystem. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's at the center of the ecosystem, but it's the ecosystem that gives it all the power. And so it's very important that you keep that ecosystem intact, which means you've got to continue to make a market with, you know, as the leader in that market. Is a difference in the toolkit that you use when you work with SaaS companies that focus on SMB versus enterprise? Yes, I think the more you get to, to the S end of SMB, the more you're in a transactional, almost like a could be, it's almost like a B2C. It's a B2C sales motion, although it's it's kind of a land and expand or viral movement. Think about the way a, a social media, pro, I mean, a, a enterprise media thing like Yammer or, or Slack or any of those got started, they, or Atlassian or, or you know any of those guys. They started by just essentially being freemium and being available. And you kind of, you bubble up from the bottom. And, you, and it's, it really is a very consumer style viral play. If you're doing the enterprise, it's a completely different play. At the enterprise, you start from the top down and the idea is, Where's the trapped value in their business processes that I can unleash? And you go to the person who owns the business process, who's way above the people that are going to use your software. And you say, look, you've got this problem and we can take this problem off your plate and look at all the, you know, either you're going to save a ton of money or you're going to make a ton of money, or you're going to be, you know, you're going to have a whole new set of possibilities because of this. You should sponsor us coming down. So it's much more of a, that's much more of a relationship marketing, thought leadership, you know, resetting the agenda kind of thing. It's a much more sophisticated thing, whereas the, the other one's more. So product-led growth, for example, mm -hmm. that's a bottom-up idea. Mm -hmm. And problem-led growth is a top-down idea. Yeah. Oh, you're a partner of Wildcat Ventures. Could you please maybe tell us, provide an example of a successfully implemented blueprint of crossing the chasm? Yeah, and it's fun. We're, we're right in the middle of one. I'm on the board of this company called WorkFusion. It's in New York City. And basically, you know, there's been this real interest in robotic process automation that's, that's taken over the last five years because, you know, now we can start using machine learning and AI to, to do tasks that historically people had to do. And the first wave of success, I would say, was a more of a bottom-up 
viral approach we were just talking about, where basically you allow departments to take workflows or repetitive workflows and kind of just take them off the table and make their people more productive. Workfusion had a, a higher level idea, which was we want to take really gnarly, complicated processes and, and see if we how much of the human we could take out of that piece. And so they'd done, they'd been in existence for a while. They'd had some very exciting projects and they'd done some very amazing things, but it was hard to understand what they were doing. It was all early market. It was people who believed in, you know, using AI and machine learning to, to attack really tough problems. But each, each sale was kind of a unique event. It was a little bit of a one-off kind of thing, very project oriented. And so what happened in the last year is we said, they said, look, we can start, we found, we, first of all, they picked a segment. So this segment was banking. And then they picked the regulatory compliance problems in banking, like know your customer, anti-money laundering, anti-fraud, those kinds of things. And they said, look, you're always going to have a certain amount of human judgment in this, but we think we can attack the problem a lot with machine learning. And so they created this concept called digital workers. And, and so, so basically, a digital worker is a prepackaged robotic process automation unit that essentially applies for the job. So, I mean, literally, you, you can look at the job postings at the company and say, if you're hiring people, I want to have my digital worker apply for that job. And so it's very, all of a sudden, it was a use case that was compelling because you, if you're in banking, you got to do this stuff, but there's a backlog that's huge and there's risk building up more and more. It's like, oh my gosh. And so very exciting. And so they, they, they've got seven digital workers right now. They started with, there was two that were really key at the beginning though, one, two, and they're getting an enormous amount of traction because people are going, wow, you really do get, you. this really is you. And so I, now they haven't quite, I don't think we can declare victory quite yet, but I'm really optimistic about the way they're executing what are you looking for in the, in terms of when do you think it's going to be uh, victorious? So we always what we normally say is if you list the top ten accounts in your target market segment, and it's always a vertical market. Mm -hmm. it, you know when you when you can get five before your closest competitors gotten two, that's sort of like step. That's kind of like a, a pretty. And when if you can get like eight before they've got more than two, then it's like the market goes. Well, wait a minute. There's a new sheriff in town, and, and that's what you're doing. That's the way it works. Have you seen any companies that that you thought was successfully implementing this blueprint, but somehow it flopped? Maybe there was misstep or... Yeah, it's so interesting. So when can it flop? One thing that can flop is, is you, actually, you actually cross the chasm and you win your first segment, but there aren't any bowling pins. I mean, it was like so specialized that like you just you you couldn't leverage it going forward and so you, like like that way back in time there was a the tandem computer company was a non-stop computer at a time when computers stopped more than you want them to and so at that time they went into atm machines and banking and they got a ton of atm machines mm -hmm. and then they got there was a second use case in telco but they couldn't ever get beyond those first those two use cases and so it just didn't generalize and so eventually they got bought by Hewlett Packard and they became a kind of a product line in the Hewlett Packard portfolio so it didn't fail but the the way you fail crossing the chasm i think is if you well the other thing you can do is pick a use case and find out that you, the, a competitor does it better than you do 
in which case that's really bad because now you've committed your company and you're not you're not going to be the leader because they're going to be the leader. So that's the other place. I, I, when I'm the very first startup I was in, this goes back in time before probably we were born, but it was a, it was a semiconductor software company that did analytics for process analytics. And we thought we were the bee's knees. And it turned out that there was a product called RS1 from BBNN that was better than our product, hands down. <laughs> we just got trounced. <laughs> Jeffrey, so you, you wrote several books on many of them, and uh, they clearly uh, connected, right? In what order you think people should read them? For a long time, I thought the issue was strategy. So, if it, it, so I'll tell you what the books are, but I really think it's the first and the last of the ones that matter the most. So Crossing the Chasm kind of teed up Okay, what's going on here? And that that I think is was seminal. Inside the tornado was saying, okay, well, once you cross the chasm, you have this other thing, the tornado. And if you if you're in a that kind of market, that's actually the more important book of the two. But crossing the chasm is the most famous of the two. So those two. The next four books, which Grilla Game, which is about investing in high tech. Living on the Fault Line, which is like, how do you deal with a collapse in the market? Dealing with Darwin, how do you start to innovate as a bigger company? Escape velocity, you know, how do you as a big company catch the next wave? All those were strategy ideas, and and I think there's good models in all of them. But Zone to Win, which is the last one, which is a playbook very similar to Crossing the Chasm, what the heck do you do to actually prosecute this second wave idea and what kind of problems you're going to run into and how do you fix them those two i think so crossing the chasm and zone to win if i had to guess are the two books that might still be on people's bookshelves when i you know say goodbye got it oh jeffrey thank you very much for being on the podcast it was great. well it's been a pleasure i really enjoyed it thank you